HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bend a Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bendatable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off, and we at HRN get 10 bucks. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food. My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X. Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds. What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos, because they don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Although... The Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times. It's pretty hype. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And if you were asked to describe the flavors of Hunan or Sichuan food, or many other Chinese dishes for that matter, there would surely be mention of the spicy red-hot chili peppers. But to think that these peppers were not native to China might initially surprise you. And of course, I know there are a lot of you out there who would realize, oh, right, well, it's a new world food, you know, spice root and traders. And yes, you would be right. But the chili's path to its present ubiquity and status in China was a bit more involved than just that. And my guest today, historian Brian Dot, has explained it all in an in-depth study about the history of the chili pepper in China, as well as its cultural significance. And it's called The Chili Pepper in China, a cultural biography. Brian Dot is a professor of history and Asian and Middle Studies, Middle Eastern Studies at Whitman College, and he's actually chair of the Department of History and director of the, the Asian and Middle Eastern Studies Department. And his previous book is Identity Reflections, Pilgrimages to Mount Tai in Late Imperial China. So he's been very much immersed in Chinese studies. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you really took a deep dive into the chili pepper in China in this in this book, and and it is indeed a cultural biography. And, and for somebody who's been on 
such an academic path. Did you ever think you'd be writing about food? I don't know. I mean, yeah, it was a bit of a change for me, for sure. Um, But I've always considered myself a cultural historian. And of Mm -hmm. course, food is a really important part of culture. Absolutely. So I, I hadn't thought I would end up there, but it looking back it makes sense that I that I did end up there. Well, you know, I'm I was really in reading the book which is just wonderfully fascinating and and well documented and um I I realized that you have must have quite a background in in Chinese studies and um tell me a little bit about that about your background when you're with China in particular. Sure. So as an undergraduate, I actually majored in international relations in French. And then after graduating, decided I wanted to shift gears a little bit. So I built on the international relations component by wanting to focus on somewhere outside of the U.S. Um, but I think one of the things that really drew me to China, I mean, well, two things. One was a really fun art history course that I took on Chinese art that was just fulfilling a requirement. And the other was my father at the time was a a geology professor, and it was right when China was starting to send scholars abroad. And he had several students from China while I was finishing up high school and while I was in college And so I got to meet them. My family would have them over for Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners. And I think that just sort of planted a seed of curiosity about things Chinese, Mm. particularly Chinese culture. Yeah, well, obviously you must be relatively fluent in at least one of the the dialects. I mean, in the basic Chinese, Cantonese language. I mean... Yeah, so... After undergraduate, I went to the University of Michigan and did an interdisciplinary master's degree. Um, I started Chinese actually just before that and then continued Chinese at Michigan. Um, When I finished the degree at Michigan, I then went on to a history PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, um, where I also continued language study. And then I did a year of advanced language study uh, in Taiwan uh, as part of my graduate studies. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I figured you had to be, you know, familiar with the characters and, and you know, some of the language. Because in order to do the, the type of cultural study that you did, I mean, it's not just about food. It's not just about um, crops. It's not, you know, about the travel of a new product. I mean, you reached into all kinds of fields and you must have, I mean, you gave a, um, a listing of, of, of some of the resources you use and everything from local newspapers and, and, um, to medical texts and quite impressive. I have to say, what was, how did you, how did you go about doing such an exhaustive study like this? I mean, what, you know, is it, for instance, um, knowing you had to go into the medical um, you know, medical books and, and uh, local papers. Why? Um, so one of the things, you know, mostly I really enjoyed this project. 
Um, but there were some frustrations with the fact that there, the sources on the chili pepper uh, in the sort of early modern period, so late 1500s up to into the 1800s, are really thin. Um, and so part of what I had to do and why I use such a wide variety of sources is because I needed to be able to find basically as much as I possibly could. Um, and then once I was getting into the project, I really realized that the medical uses had a big impact on how the Chinese adopted and adapted the chili pepper to fit into their culture. Um, but it was uh, one of the other factors that played a really important role is I don't think I could have done this project, say, 10 years ago. And that's because the Chinese have done a lot of digitizing of historical documents. And a lot of those are full text searchable, which allowed me to go through an enormous amount of material searching for the chili pepper specifically. Something I would not have, you know, I would not have been able to find a lot of the sources I did in, in a lifetime of, of just going through them manually. Right. Now that's that's really interesting because that's that is I mean that's a problem even today in um in doing culinary history and any food history is that you know the lack of digitization of so many of the texts that you know it's, it's and it's hard to get your hands on a lot of the primary sources. Um so let's talk about the chili pepper and let's talk about the when and the why and the how and and when did obviously we know you know the that it was a new world food so that that already you know we jump ahead to you know the 16th century um what you know tell us about when it first reached china and how sure so the earliest written record for the chili pepper in china is from 1591 um and if you think about it it's not leaving the americas until Columbus, and probably he didn't take it back to Europe until his second voyage, so that's 1494. So in less than 100 years, I mean just less, but less than 100 <laughs> years, it's getting to China. Mm -hmm. um, and that's pretty amazing for that, for that time period. Um, so it probably got to China before that first written record. Um, so my best guess is it's getting there somewhere in the 1570s, 1580s. Um, we have more precise dates for some of the other New World crops, or you know, crops from the Americas, like maize and the sweet potato and the peanut. And all of those are getting adopted and, and introduced into China a little bit earlier, say 1530s, 1540s. Um, and then tobacco is getting there around the same time as the chili pepper. Um, probably um, that earliest written record based on where that author put the chili in his, this was a very large work about sort of living the good life. Um, and he put the chili pepper in a section on decorative plants. So it seems likely he was not eating them 
um, but was enjoying them in pots in his garden, in his nice mansion in uh, uh, Hangzhou. Um, so it seems that initial elite use is as a decorative plant, and that's interesting parallel when the chili pepper first arrives in Spain, they also are not eating it. It was sort of too intense. And similarly, we have records of monastery gardens growing chilies as decorative plants in Spain. Hmm. Uh, it takes a, a pretty clearly the lower classes are using it early on as a spice, as a flavoring. Um, and, you know, one of the questions I hoped to answer more precisely during the research was how exactly it got to China. And that really wasn't possible. Um, there's just not the detail in any of the historical records. And that's largely due to the fact that it was not traded. It was not a trade commodity. And that, I think, is basically has to do with the the nature of the chili pepper plant itself. So it's very different from the traditional spice trade spices like nutmeg or cloves or black pepper, which all require a subtropical to tropical climate to grow and therefore have to be continually imported into temperate places like Europe or uh, China. And so the chili pepper will grow in temperate climates. And so you don't need to import it. You just need a few seeds and you're ready to go. Um, and so I think it's spreading primarily through members of ship's crews, taking them along with them as flavoring in their food. And then they're either accidentally or intentionally distributing seeds in various ports of call. Um, and that's how it's getting up to Southeast Asia and then from Southeast Asia into China. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, I mean, it grows in temperate climates. It's a, it, if anyone's ever grown peppers, you know, it's a very easy plant to grow. I mean, they, you know, the, they, different varieties. You can grow several different varieties in one small plot very easily. So I can see where anyone would be able to, uh, to grow these there. Um, what, um, so then what popularized it? What put it on, you know, in, on, well, in the books, because obviously we have to rely on written records to, to have these dates or some sort of cultural reference in, an, in a, you know, um, you mentioned, I think, even in poetry, sometimes it would appear in poetry or maybe not poetry, but certainly um, other reports. When do we find it appearing on in in cooking more generally that we would know about? Um, so it seems to be initially used, so the lower classes are initially using it as a flavoring and probably as a substitute for other flavorings that they either were harder to get at a particular moment or more expensive. And of course, Pretty much anything you're buying is more expensive than something you're growing in your own garden. Um, and so we, there's a number of pretty early references to the chili pepper as a substitute for the native Sichuan pepper, um, 
which, you know, it's interesting to note in English, we use pepper for black pepper, Sichuan pepper, and the chili pepper. They're three separate plant families. They're completely unrelated one to the other. Um, Sichuan pepper or Sichuan peppercorn is in the um, prickly ash family. And it has a very distinctive, pungent flavor, plus it has this numbing quality. It literally numbs your lips and uh, tongue a little bit. Um, And, you know, some people like to joke the Sichuanese love to combine chili peppers and Sichuan pepper because it allows you to add more heat from the chilies because you can't really feel it. <laughs> no, um, obviously, <laughs> they're doing something else with it than that, but, but it's sort of a, a joke that some people like to play. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the Sichuan pepper isn't imported, but it's a, a small tree. It grows on a small tree, so it's not something somebody would have in their vegetable garden or kitchen garden, and so they'd still have to buy it at the market. So it's a little bit more expensive, you know, a little bit of cost. Um, it's also used as a substitute for salt. Um, salt in China uh, in that time period was a government-controlled, uh, more or less a monopoly, um, and so that raised the price, artificially raised the price and then if you're in some places in the interior where there's not ready access to salt, it's going to be fairly expensive because it has to be moved overland. And so there's also a period in the early 1600s when there's a lot of disorder in China generally, but particularly in that salt industry, and the prices skyrocket. Um, and so I think, you know, there's no, I'm not going to, no one will ever find evidence that somebody wrote down salt's really expensive, therefore the chili pepper became more popular. <laughs> but I think you can make a pretty solid inference that that was a key point in helping the chili pepper to take off in popularity as a substitute for salt. Also got used as a substitute for black pepper. And that, of course, would have been fairly expensive because that's being imported from Southeast Asia. Right. Um, um, yeah, go well, ahead. You, um, you mentioned that, obviously, it, went, it was introduced in Southeast Asia first, and so many of those Southern Asian countries do make, today, make great use of the peppers in their cuisines. Um, then it, it was really, um, I guess it went through um, the Hunanese, the Hunan province, really had more of an acceptance of it and use of it first? Is that, am I correct in assuming that? Um, So it it comes in first at the coast Mm -hmm. um, in Orang Hangzhou, and then it gets introduced separately from Korea into northern China, Mm -hmm. and then also separately by the Dutch into Taiwan. and so from Hunan, for Hunan, it would be spreading there from that central coastal introduction. And yeah, for the Hunanese, there's already some tradition of strong flavoring, and it takes off pretty readily. And then um, as we're moving through the sort of 1640s to the 1670s, 80s, 
there's just a lot of unrest and warfare and banditry in Sichuan that leads to a decimation of the population. And so after that, so starting 1680s, 1690s, the government actively promoted immigration into Sichuan. And a lot of those people were from Hunan, but also Hubei. And they almost certainly brought the chili pepper with them. Um, And that's how we get that introduction from Hunan. It's moving into Sichuan, um, where it perhaps even takes off. I mean, it's hard to argue one's more intense than the other, but um, there's certainly a huge amount of use in both of those Mm-hmm. local regional cuisines. Mm-hmm. Well, because the it's it's interesting because then the introduction of um uh, of Americans to that cuisine came, you know, so late the Sichuan food and that was an explosion in many ways explosion of the hot chili pepper as well. Absolutely. But that yeah. was very, that was quite late, but that was already that was already rep, you know representative of Sichuan cuisine. So um that's interesting that it was the Hunan immigrants that yeah, that actually brought the pepper there. Mm-hmm. And in reading through your your um, sources and, and where you could find uh, dates of when the first mention of the chili pepper, it, it was so interesting to see how um, the, the discrepancy in, in time periods. I mean, everything from an early mention in late 1500s, early 1600s, and then maybe some provinces wouldn't even have a mention of it until the mid to late 1800s. So really was, um, it didn't travel as rapidly as one might think. Yeah. And I mean, some of those ones, especially the ones, there's a couple of places where the earliest source in a particular province isn't until the 19th century. I mean, almost certainly people were eating the chilies there, and it's just not getting picked up by the local elite who would be the <laughs> ones that are writing about it for whatever reason. That's um, and that's interesting because you, um, as you say, it sort of started as a well, it has been mentioned, or um, you didn't, I don't know if you said it or not, as a poor man's spice, um, right? Yep. And and then, but then you did write that the elite class discouraged the consumption of strong flavors. And the late imperial period authors avoided eating, or at least, as you just said, writing about them. They may have been eating them, but they certainly weren't <laughs> right, writing right, about yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but this speaks again to the, um, you know, the class differences in what in the diets and what people were eating, right? Absolutely. So we get the first use as a flavoring is is almost certainly at the lower classes. They can grow it themselves in their kitchen garden. They don't have to be buying something else. Um, and then something that I think is really important, we've, we've touched on it just a little bit, in terms of the popularization of the chili in China is its integration into the traditional Chinese medical system. Um, and that, I think, quickly people realized that there were a lot of benefits from eating the chilies in addition to it adding flavor and, and, and spice and heat to the dishes. Um, and some of those, it was really important, it, particularly for a literate person, to understand 
how the chili pepper fit into traditional categorizations. So, you know, not surprisingly, it gets placed within the five flavorings in the pungent category. Uh, You wouldn't really expect it to be anywhere else. Um, But once that's done, and then it's also not, again, not surprisingly associated as having heating properties, but it still was important for those to be identified and recorded. Um, and, and, you know, even the non-elite, the non-lyrate would ha- had an understanding of those systems. And it was important for them in how they were using the chili pepper um, for impacting health to understand how it fit into those systems. You know, I, I want to talk a little bit more about these medical uses. We have to take a, a very brief break. So... Um, when we come back, we're going to. I want you to explain some of the medicinal uses. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Bend a Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Bend a Table is founded by Ben Simon, a longtime food lover, advocate, and experimenter. Ben goes around the country finding the stuff that you would buy if you were vacationing somewhere cool like Charleston or California, and he buys it for you and sends it to you in a box. Bend a Table has three different subscription plans. One, pantry essentials, incredible dry staples each month. Rancho Gordo beans, Geechee Boy grits, and community grain pastas. All excellent, by the way. Global Delicacies is another choice, and it's a way to explore the cuisine of different countries and cultures. Delicacy boxes might include razor clams from Spain, tinned, obviously. Wheat lacoche from Mexico, or grilled artichokes in oil from Italy. Bend a Table includes both the Pantry Essential and the Global Delicacy Plan. By purchasing any subscription, you'll help sustainable, well-produced ingredients and small producers stay alive in today's big business environment. Start your monthly subscription at bendatable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription, and Bend a Table will donate $10 to support all of HRN's programming. Okay, we're back, and I'm speaking with Brian Dot about his new book, The Chili Pepper in China, a cultural biography. And and we were just touching, were you, Brian, were just uh, starting to explain a lot of the, um, the acceptance of the chili pepper through medical uses. And what were, in, in a more layman's terms, <laughs> some of the medicinal uses of sure. the chili pepper? Um, so... Any pungent flavoring in the traditional Chinese medical system gets linked to the lungs um, and is linked to having drying properties and, of course, heating properties. And so pretty early on, it's seen as an important thing for helping with uh, lung ailments and and particularly in drying out lung ailments. There are also very early on, so the earliest text that specifically mentions medical uses of the chili peppers from 1621. So that's, you know, not that long after that original source in 1591. Um, So in that one and a lot of other texts, it emphasizes that the chili pepper as an appetite stimulator and then also as something that stimulates digestion or aids in digestion. Um, And, you know, it's not always useful to make ties between traditional medical systems and sort of modern biomedicine. But in this case, there are some interesting parallels. So if you look at a lot of studies of 
recent studies of the chili pepper in modern biomedicine, the the capsaicin, that's the the spicy element in the chili mm-hmm. pepper, activates salivary glands, and that can help stimulate appetite. It also chewing and salivating are the first steps of digestion. And then the capsaicin, once it's in the stomach, also stimulates uh, production of gastric juices. And that also obviously stimulates digestion, but it can also help to stimulate appetite. So this makes a lot of sense that way. Mm-hmm. They've also, um, I think they probably figured out, um, you know, in terms of the, the traditional Chinese medicine, yeah, medical system figured out benefits of the chili pepper that, you know, probably they didn't fully understand, but would be connected with, for example, the chili pepper is really high in vitamin C and, and fairly high in vitamin A. Um, and I think they probably just observed effects, the positive effects of that. Um other things they observed uses for the chili pepper, um, they recognized its sort of antimicrobial properties. So it has that ability to kill off things. Um, and again, that's the, primarily the capsaicin that's doing that. Um, and again, we can see examples of that in, in modern biomedical research where they'll put a bunch of bacteria in a petri dish, and then add capsaicin, and then most of them die. Um, and so, particularly in in Fujian, which is the southeast coast of China, where they eat a lot of seafood, a whole lot of the local sources there talk about the chili pepper as a treatment for illness from fish poisoning. So, some sort of thing that it's helping um, to counter. Um, Probably some sort of bacteria in the in the fish. Well, it's interesting. Was I? I've noticed in photographs, and then and you even have included some beautiful um, colored plates in your book. Um, that in the markets there are a wide variety of of chili peppers, but yet it's the it's the cuisine in the cuisine. It seems always to be the um, the small red pointed chili pepper that is used is are, are they seeking the highest capsaicin uh, ratio to the pepper or what why is that why did that become the most popular one to use in cooking that's a good question um i think i don't know if i i, I don't have a complete answer but i think mm. i have i think it's one of the ones that dries the best uh-huh. and preserves the best through drying mm-hmm. um and they're not, I mean, even though we, we think of the Sichuanese or the Hunanese as eating a whole lot of spice and really, really hot, um, they, of course, you know, obviously they're more used to it and they will emphasize the flavor as really, really important. And so the multiple varieties, I think, are something you get more if you're actually in the region. Um, and And so if you're... I mean, I've seen multiple varieties in Beijing, too. Um, but I think uh, that 
there's an expect, you know, it's one of these things where there's an expectation that you'll see a whole bunch of those dried red pointed chili peppers in your dish. And therefore the proprietors of a Sichuan restaurant in Beijing will use those. Um, but if you're actually in Sichuan or Hunan, I think you're going to find a, a greater variety of chilies in the food. Um, but I do think there's that that element of it dries well. And then that, you know, that is the one that, like today, they grow huge, huge amounts of that, of those sort of varieties of the, the long red pointed chilies. Yeah. Well, I mean, and if you look at a picture of, of any of the popular dishes, like Fuchsia Dunlop, uh, who was recently on the show with her new book, and, and some of her, her dishes in particular are representative of these, um, where there will be an equal number of the peppers to, let's say, the sliced eggplant in one dish. Right. I mean, yes, in, yes. it's amazing how many, how many there are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, aside from cooking, of course, there are... Um, it the pepper managed to creep into the culture in other ways as well. And language was one of them we haven't talked about um, as far as even the name for this new foreign pepper, as they called it. What uh, Talk about the, the, that, the name of the pepper a bit. Sure. So um, the term pepper in Chinese is zhao, um, and that character by itself originally was used for the native Sichuan pepper. And then you can add different characters in front of that to, to describe that particular uh, flavoring that, that's in the prickly ash family. When black pepper arrived in China, roughly the second century, um, it ha- also had a pungent flavor. So they took that term that we translate as pepper and call, used it to describe the black pepper. And then they stuck a character in front of it, hu. Uh, so hu jiao means pepper from the West or pepper from India. Um, and then when the chili pepper arrived, they, again, the, the first author to write about it, recognized. So clearly he had tried it a little bit, even if he's mostly growing them as as decorative plants, because he did recognize that they were spicy, and he did give them the name um, foreign pepper. Um, So fan jiao, it's a different character that means foreign than the one that's used for black pepper. Um, And one of the arguments I make, and we've touched on a little bit, is that the use of that... Uh, word jiao or pepper implies also, particularly in some of the regional references, that that it's being used in very similar ways. Um, And so it's being used as a substitute. But, you know, as you move into, say, the late 1600s to the early 1700s, people are definitely starting to use it as its own flavoring, not just as a substitute and by the time you get to the 19th century, there's really no more references to it as a substitute. And it's just being described on its own. Um, so other places uh, where it comes in, 
one of the ways I argue that we can, can, can make a case for three different entry points is the earliest name for chili pepper in those three places is different. Um, but all of them use that word jiao um, or pepper. So that one on the central coast is foreign pepper. So the author recognized that it's coming from outside of China. In the north, they called it qin jiao, which is actually uh, another name for the native Sichuan pepper in some regions, but not the name that was usually used there. So borrowing again a name for something that also has a strong flavor. And then in Taiwan, it's um, fanjiang, which is foreign ginger. Um, mm. And again, in this case, you know, chili pepper is, you know, it's a seed pod, not a rhizome. It's not growing in the, in the ground. It's on right. the plant. And so it's not that it looks anything like that. It's again, that it can be used in a similar way in the cooking. Mm. Um, well, and then later we get the development of a new, you know, a, a, another name, which is the one that dominates today, which is la jiao, which means basically spicy pepper. Um, and that character la, you know, it means spicy and it has meant spicy. If you look in earlier time periods, it's referencing the flavor of things like ginger and garlic and onions, mustard. Um, but as the chili pepper becomes more and more popular, we can see dictionaries shifting. And this, the shift in dictionaries is actually quite recent, um, where the dominant definition is now chili pepper. So before it was, you know, the flavor of garlic, ginger, um, onions. And then over time, chili pepper gets added in. And then in the most recent dictionaries, the first uh, descriptor for what is la is the chili pepper. Interesting timeline on, on just that on just that one word in the character. Yeah. The, um, there certainly are a lot of symbolic... Um, yeah, I guess it would be symbolic. And Mao Zedong is, is certainly one who helped popularize peppers or at least brought them to the forefront. And there are gender tropes as well through that. Talk about uh, Mao's relationship with the pepper. <laughs> sure. So Mao was from Hunan, which is one of the places where a lot of chili consumption happens. And he absolutely adored chili peppers, so, I mean, my favorite anecdote, uh, uh, Fuchsia Dumlop has this in one of in her, her book as well, mm -hmm. that Mao actually liked to sprinkle dried chili pepper flakes on his watermelon. Um, so he would eat a lot of chilies, and he liked to make fun of people who couldn't. Um, and then he would also extrapolate from that... Um, and, and associated the ability to eat chilies with the ability to be a soldier and the ability to be a revolutionary. And, and so it, at one point, one of his doctors recommended that he eat fewer chilies. And, you know, Mao just scoffed at him and was like, if, if you're afraid to face the chilies in your bowl, how are you going to face your enemies? And so there's this element of sort of male virility, fighting spirit that Mao very consciously associated with 
eating lots of chili peppers. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> and so, and you know, other people have looked and, and shown, oh, look, there's all of these major military leaders in the in China in the past couple hundred years who are from Hunan. And that sort of helps to feed into that idea of the importance of chilies for the revolution. Um, and so we have that element of the chili as a symbol sort of for for male virility, which gets carried, which is predominantly focused on warrior abilities. But we also get a development of a sort of gender trope associated with women, which is quite different. Um, and in that one, we have this uh, trope or stereotype of la meza, which is a spicy young woman or spicy girl um, and, and these are women who have really feisty, spicy personalities. Um, they're individual. They are assertive. Um, and they're very, very capable. And that gets associated with their having eaten chilies since they're very, very young. Um, and that we have a sort of an, an initial reference of that in literature quite early on. But the most popular version of it is in the 18th century novel Hong Lo Mong or Dream of the Red Chamber. And there is a very feisty woman in the main family who's chosen to be the sort of keeper of the purse strings. Um, the family's starting to have some hard times and they need a little more control on their spending. And the matriarch of the family picks this young, uh, you know, daughter-in-law, or I guess it would be granddaughter-in-law for her, um, to be the one in charge of that. And she's chosen because she has this very prickly, spicy personality. In the novel, she almost certainly was not eating chilies, but she gets the nickname of, uh, of, you know, spicy, uh, the spicy one, essentially. Mm. Um, and in that novel, it's still not, you know, she has some uh, sort of gender crossing tendencies. Her name actually means, you know, male phoenix. Um, and she's outspoken and controlling and domineering. Um, and in the novel, it follows this very traditional Confucian moral judgment. At the end, she dies a painful death, and that's sort of associated with her sort of crossing, transgressing gender lines. If we look at the modern version of this trope, the La Meza trope, um, there it's it, it's lost that those negative connotations, and it's a very positive connotation praising them for their independence, assertiveness, and sort of going out into the world and, and seeking their own fortune. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how um, this pepper, this, you know, small thing, uh, just sort of became almost like an identity for some of the regions and for, as you just said, a lot of different personality and types. And, and it... It, you know, it's as though that pepper were always there. And you wrote that um, 
that a sign of the widespread adoption and indigenization of an imported object is its symbolic use within the host culture. And there are quite a bit of, of other symbolic uses, I mean, actual physical symbolic uses of the chili in, in, uh, in its host culture in China that has taken root. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those and some sure. of the decorations? Um, so the decorative uh, aspect of the chili peppers. So, I mean, very early on, we have that very first author that's using them as a decorative plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so traditionally in China, red is a color of celebration. So a traditional wedding, the bride would wear a red gown. Um, and, you know, shininess is appreciated. So carved coral, red coral was really uh, something that, that members of the elite would appreciate. And there's, you know, a way in which those shiny red pods look a little bit like that. Uh, semi-precious stone, the coral. Um, And so there's also elements of a pod with a whole bunch of seeds can be a symbol for abundance. Um, And of course, the chilies do have a lot of seeds per per pod. Um, And then, so it gets used in that decorative way. Um, But then in more recent times, it's taken on additional meanings in terms of its decorativeness. And, And so, you know, traditionally you could, and you still find people doing this where at harvest time, you'll, you'll make a string of chilies to dry them, hanging them from the roof, you know, the eaves of a roof house. Um, a lot like you, you find similar things in, in the Southwest in the U S. Um, and then that has also been carried over into sort of artificial strings of chili. So stuffed, you know, uh, cloth chilies, uh, glass chilies, and strings of those are now typically hung up one on either side of the doorway as a decoration at Chinese New Year's time. And they're essentially uh, it's a bit of a wordplay, um, it's, but it's essentially a prayer for uh, abundance and success in the coming New Year. Um, and that's become a really a really popular way you can see that chili pepper really integrated into the culture. Chinese New Year is the most important holiday in the Chinese calendar. It's sort of like Thanksgiving and Hanukkah or Thanksgiving and Christmas combined together in one one big event. Right. I mean, it's it really has. Uh inculcated itself into the the culture and the cuisine and and the language i mean it, it really um as you even wrote it's it's so much a part of the chinese identity that it it is thus an authentic chinese plant even though it is not <laughs> right. i mean yeah. can you think of any place else i mean i um that ha- any other country that you know took on um in a new world food like that, as that in such, not only yes, in cuisine, I can think of a lot of different examples that they made it their own in the cuisine, but to make it be so much a part of their entire yeah, I, culture. I mean, I'm not as familiar, but I would think the tomato in Italy. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Pretty similar. Yeah, um, but they don't I mean, use it, it so much. Predominantly in the food, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't use it as they use the hot red chili pepper in the right, <laughs> as, right, as symbols yeah, also, yeah. but. 
I guess because it's the spiciness, you know? Right. We right. all want a little bit of spice in our life. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I think I so. guess yeah. that might yeah. be it. Well, I have a question for you um, on the book jacket that you have, or, or the designer, um, has a picture of the dried pods in a, obviously, a Chinese character and a symbol or a word. Right, right. Yeah. What and what is that? China, the chili pepper? Is that chili pepper? Um. It's a character for Xin, which is the traditional name for the spicy or pungent. Ah, um, okay. So it's 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 sort of the general category under which La, that really right, spicy La. flavor, is is a subset of it. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's some uh, a Japanese uh, photographer that, that created that one. I think no, it's, I, I really like it. You know, and um, I, I guess I should have explained somewhere in there. That <laughs> that's quite all right. It gave me something to talk. I mean, because I've been staring at it saying, <laughs> yeah. well, it's not just a bunch of peppers. That I know. <laughs> it has meaning. Well, Brian, I, I really can't say how much I enjoyed this book. It really, it's, it, it's certainly, you know, a scholarly work, work with all the references you have to it and so many, you know, names and books, you know, I recognize from other things that are just now even you know, deeper into the, you know, the culture and Chinese food. But it is, it's a, it's a very interesting read. It's as informative as it is entertaining. It really is a very good read, and I encourage people to take a look at it. If, if you are ever wondering about those, you know, <laughs> those spicy Chinese peppers and, and, they're, and that they're not Chinese peppers, but now we all think of them as Chinese peppers, you see? Yes, and I yes. said it. <laughs> and again, the book is The Chili Pepper in China, a cultural biography, and it's published by Columbia University Press. And it is by my guest today. The author is Brian Dot. Brian, again, thank you so much. And I, I can't wait to, to see what else you come up with. Who knows? You might keep <laughs> writing about food. <laughs> I think I probably will. And thank it's you so much, Linda. It's been wonderful okay. talking with you. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to A Taste of the Past. And it is, Taste of the Past is, as you know, recorded by Heritage Radio Network. And Heritage Radio is home to dozens of cutting-edge podcasts on the world of food and drink. HRN, as we like to call it, is a 501c3 member-supported network, relying on listeners like you to help keep us going. Visit heritageradionetwork.org and click on that little beating heart in the upper right-hand corner to make a donation and become a member. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.